Hello and welcome to The Crit. My name is Ollie Stratford. I'm one of your hosts. And I'm Johanna Argerman-Ross and I'm still here. You're back. You're back, back by popular demand. You wouldn't believe the number of emails I got actually praising you. Wow. I'm, I'm feeling so honoured. Thank you very much, listeners. Saved by listener demand. You're the nation's sweetheart, the people's <laughs> princess. How are you? How have you been? I'm actually well, uh, but I have been self-isolating for the last week. So yeah, I've been familiarizing myself with home testing kits and it it's weird, you know, like you get pinged suddenly and it's ultimately your phone holding you hostage for a week or 10 days. Well, a, a sense of decency in public health as well, holding you hostage. Clearly, but I did think, I wonder if something like this would have worked only five six seven years ago you know at that point we weren't so used to taking instructions from our phones the quantified digital self wasn't really as much of a thing but now we gladly follow when when our phones tell us to do things i like that you hold your phone very much personally responsible for this (laughs) that it's your phone which is to blame for your confinement but I, i tested negative did my isolation but going slightly mad from having been inside for so long how are you ollie I'm well. I actually went to Highgate Cemetery in the past week. What did you do there? Just wanted to wander around. For those who don't know Highgate Cemetery, it's a Victorian cemetery in the north of London. And I think it was one of London's original seven magnificent cemeteries, which were founded in the Victorian age. But it's very beautiful. It's quite sort of romantic. So it's a plot of kind of forested land with rambling old tombstones spread all around, which nature has overrun a little bit. But they have a new installation installed in the courtyard to the West Cemetery by Phila de Barlow. Uh, it's called ACT, and it's it's quite impressive. Hmm. Karl Marx is buried there, isn't he? Karl Marx is buried there. He's actually in the East Cemetery. The East Cemetery has been open for years. You can go in and walk around. Until very recently, the West Cemetery, you had to only uh, go on guided tours of because the it's in such a state of disrepair. It's very mouldering, so bits of mausoleums and tombs are falling off, and it was felt to be too dangerous to have people wandering around in case you sued the cemetery because a bit of grave hit you. But they're now trialling it, so it's it's open up to people, which is quite exciting because the West Cemetery is the older of the two and probably the more dramatic. It has more of the very grand old mausoleums, and it has the famous bits like the Egyptian Avenue and the Circle of Lebanon and Terrace Catacombs, which are these kind of, it's like a necropolis, a city of the dead, a city of the restful dead. Sounds delightful. Uh, But what was the installation like? It's great. I really like it. It's a sort of reflection upon memorialisation and memory and I think the way the Victorians uh, honoured the dead particularly. So from the front, it looks like this very commanding mausoleum. It's these big concrete panels and then rising up, you have this sort of tower of fabric wrapped poles. So it's quite abstract, but it looks like some kind of vast monument to the dead. But then as you go around the side, you realise that those panels are sort of paper thin. They're just concrete screed. And at the back, you can see all of this sort of supporting framework and structure propping it up. So it's it's like a Potemkin memorial. It's, it's like a, th- a theatre... Uh, set to the dead almost and it's it's quite powerful it does make you think about memory and the way we think about things and the and the memorials 
we build, particularly in the context of the cemetery. But, you know, at the moment when we have billionaires spending billions to go into space to uh, secure their legacies and create this great lasting monument to their own wealth and power... It, it made me think a little bit about that and, you know, what what could you build and remember that might be a little bit more worthy of memory, a bit more substantial. Mm, quite an existential walk for you. Oh, it's an absolute crisis. <laughs> yeah, I had, a, I had a horrible time. Sorry to hear that. Just walked around thinking upon the grave. No, it's, it's really wonderful. And actually, I think for a design and architecture audience, it's a very good time to visit the cemetery um, because they've just announced uh, a new landscape um, project, an architecture project to revamp that cemetery, actually, and to sort of secure its future. So Gustafsson, Porter and Bowman are going to be working on the landscape and Hopkins Architects are working on a master plan for the cemetery. So maybe a good time to get involved and, and go see some flipping graves. Well, I shall make sure to rush there as soon as I'm released by my phone to enter into the world again. Do get back, get back into the world of the living and into the world of the dead. (laughs) Well, let's press on with the episode then because we have a lot to get through. So one of the things I entertained myself with this week, Ollie, was watching the opening ceremony of the Olympics. Did you? I didn't actually. No, it's... I think like lots of people, this Olympics has passed me by a little bit. How was it? I'd normally quite enjoy the opening ceremony. Yeah, I mean, there was, you know, there was a sadness and somberness to it. The, the opening movements were singular people doing exercise in isolated bubbles. And there was a moment of silence for all the people lost to COVID. So, you know, there were constant reminders of the context in which we see this olympic which is starting a year late uh, taking place that's probably good right because it's been very divisive in japan and tokyo i think a lot of japanese people don't want it there given the covid risks so maybe if you go all in with an all-out singing and dancing extravaganza that would feel a little inappropriate for sure i think i think it was um uh, a suitable response to the situation. So there were only around a thousand people there for the opening ceremony. What was interesting looking at the footage of it, the the stadium still at times looked quite full and Kengokuma's Olympic Stadium was furnished with seating that's in a range of different greens and whites. So it gave this dappled effect, not making it immediately obvious that so many seats were empty. And I thought that was quite clever. Um, you know, as the camera scanned over them, uh, you, you thought that maybe it was a bit fuller than it in fact it was. How was the cauldron itself? Because that's always a big moment, particularly for design. They normally get a, a named designer cr- to create something for that and to create a sort of spectacular moment at the end. I think very famously, Thomas Heatherwick did the London uh, cauldron, which was formed out of... A huge number of individual petals that then rose up to create the shape. What did Tokyo do? Well, it was designed by Okisato and Nendo, and it didn't disappoint, I must say. It was quite wonderful. It maybe looked a little bit like a basketball at first, and then it flipped open. <laughs> Orange and rubbery. <laughs> no, white, sorry. Maybe more football then, I don't know. White ball shaped, but it had the leaves that then opened up to reveal the flame were overlapping in an interesting and intricate sort of patchwork pattern. That's why I think I think more of a basketball than a than a football. But 
the inside of it was then beautifully finished in a in a kind of aluminium mirror design. Yeah, I'm I'm just looking at images of it now actually. It the opening up is quite impressive. I don't love the aesthetic. It's slightly iRoboty. It's it's that very sort of early 2000s vision of what the future would look like where you sort of have these gleaming white exoskeletons covering robotic insides. But the movement itself looks very impressive. I mean, it's interesting you should say that because I thought that there was a very stark contrast between Nendo's cauldron and the Olympic rings that were presented earlier on in the ceremony. And they were created from all wood, which um, is unlike any other Olympics. And in fact, the nice detail of that was that the wood that was used for creating those rings were planted during the last Olympics in 1964. Um, sorry, that sounds like the last Olympics happened in 1964. They were planted during <laughs> the, the, last last, Tokyo Olympics. <laughs> the last Tokyo Olympics in 1964. It was interesting because the the athletes at that point were asked to bring seeds for trees. So there were spruces and pines from um, Ireland, from mainland Europe and from uh, North America that have grown. I think that they say there were 160 trees grown from from those seeds and they were cut down to create these Olympic rings. They were constructed using an, a traditional Japanese uh, crafting technique, which is called Yusegi Zaiku. It's a style of marquetry where you do use different grains and types of wood, and it creates a highly decorated surface. The surface of the rings weren't so decorated, but nevertheless, it was really a reminder of the great craft traditions of Japan. And I think many aspects of the uh, Olympic ceremony, opening ceremony, were that. So the cauldron really stood in contrast to that, but clearly they were also keen to show their technical prowess and the future-looking aspect of Japanese design. So I think that in some ways, you through the ceremony, you saw everything from the very traditional to the very high-tech and, and future-looking. And I think that, that there clearly was a, an intention for that slow crescendo towards the cauldron in the end. Yeah, that's an interesting point about the rings in particular and the use of wood, because I think one thing they've tried very hard to do with this Olympics is to make it more sustainable. Now, they've come in for a lot of criticism on that because a lot of the um, proposals and ventures they've put forward have been seen as greenwashing or a little bit superficial. And how do you make a vast event with thousands of people travelling to it sustainable, which, you know, those are a fair points. But I think even the cauldron, that actually didn't burn with propane like it usually does. It's hydrogen for the first time. And the really strange thing is apparently hydrogen burns with a transparent flame. It's entirely clear. So to create the uh, the traditional yellow Olympic flame, which we all know and love, they have to spray in sodium carbonate. So it's a kind of... Um, kitsch flame almost it's a flame they're having to adapt and change to make it look more like a flame yeah i quite enjoyed reading that little detail about it and i mean again these are all surface things i think but it's still interesting that anything that has a degree of visibility they have made an effort to try and make it a little bit more sustainable so i think even down to the stadium which was originally going to be designed by zaha hadid and I don't know if anyone's seen it, but it was very controversial because it was enormous and it was shaped like a vulva and people felt it was just hugely <laughs> out of 
of place in Japan. And then um, Kengokuma Stadium relies much more on timber and is a much more muted and quiet stadium, which is quite mm. nice. I mean, someone said that it's not an iconic stadium. Um, and I think that, you know, they might be right. It's, it's, it is a more quiet uh, ex- execution. And clearly... The drama and the controversy around taking the honor away from Sahadid was a bit peculiar at the time. Nevertheless, I think you're right. I think Wood definitely played has played a big role uh, in these Olympics, and I think that there is definitely a big hint towards revitalizing uh, Japanese timber industries. And I think that the Olympic Village uses a great deal of wood as well. But to look at that more sustainable aspect again for example the athletes village is made from 40,000 pieces of Japanese timber that has been borrowed by different prefectures across Japan and they are going to be returned to those prefectures to be used within local building projects when the Olympic Games are over so there clearly has been a kind of holistic thinking around these games and to also not build more than they need to. They're reusing a lot of the stadium and um, building infrastructure that w- were built already for the 1964 Tokyo Olympics. So I think that clearly there is consideration there. But one really funny thing I thought, uh, which is again an outcome of this more sustainable uh, perspective on the Olympics, is that all the athletes' beds are made from cardboard. Yeah, I saw this. So it's a company called Airweave, which has created 18,000 beds and mattresses for athletes uh, at the Olympics. The anti-sex beds also branded. (laughs) Well, this was how it was built. And I thought this was true, but it turns out it's complete fabrication. It was put out that to prevent athletes from um, becoming intimate, uh, hosting their own um, competitions, sex <laughs> sex competitions. Do you think that, they do that? Yes, definitely. Uh, yeah, 100%. I think so, because it's like a group of very young, in peak physical condition athletes who are probably quite bored in the evenings. <laughs> But yeah, there was this myth that went round, which obviously they're trying to encourage athletes to remain distanced from one another to limit the spread of COVID. And so it was claimed that these cardboard beds could only support a certain amount of weight so that if for whatever reason you had multiple people in a bed, and if for whatever reason those multiple people in the bed were in some sense vigorous, the bed would collapse under them. But it's it's sadly it's sadly not true. No, and Airweave they released a statement saying cardboard beds are actually stronger than the ones made of wood or steel. <laughs> Our beds are great for sex on. <laughs> <laughs> if you want a bed for sex, consider the Airweave. <laughs> So one piece of news that arrived late towards the end of the month, and I think is something worth celebrating, is the fact that Samuel Ross, the designer behind A Cold Wall, the fashion brand, but he's also very interested in industrial design, furniture design, architecture, sort of works across disciplines. He has announced the 2021 edition of the Black, British and POC Artists Grant, which is a programme he launched in 2020. And it makes available 10 £2,500 grants across the fields of sculpture, painting, literature, writing, photography, fashion, industrial design, furniture, film and VR and AR. I mean, I think it's great. It's 
really wonderful that Samuel Ross has taken that initiative and starting it last year where he's directly supporting up and coming or even established practitioners. It's such a worthwhile initiative in some ways I think that maybe it's a shame that it comes down to an individual to support this uh, such as Samuel Ross very much still at the beginning of his career. But I think that speaks to I think that's a testament to him that he's interested in launching something like this. I should say that these grants are being awarded under the advisement of the Design Museum, the Royal College of Art and the British Fashion Council so there is some institutional backing to it but I think undoubtedly Samuel has been the driving force Oh for sure. And that's really great because it's a new generation of designers who I think aren't going to accept the status quo and who want change and are committed to to acting on that. Yeah, and, and Ross says about this that fundamentally the vanguard of Britain's soft power on a global stage is missing far too many black POC non-linear voices on both the front and back end of operations. And, you know, who can argue with that? I think that um, from that point of view, if, if this can change that balance, that it's a, a really great thing. Yeah, I think that's worth saying. It's good practical support, isn't it? I mean, one thing with projects like this, we often focus on their symbolic value and how wonderful it is that someone is doing something and speaking about this and putting themselves forward and keeping the issues going. But let's face it, it's not a great time to be a designer at the moment. It's not a great time to be in a lot of industries. It's really tough going and any kind of financial support you can get is welcome. So to just have a programme which is offering £2,500 in in a grant and 10 times, that's really important. That's a substantial amount of money to a lot of people, which could really keep someone's studio going. So I think that's important to recognise as well, just how practical this is. You can find it on community.samuel-ross.com forward slash apply. Another really great initiative that's happened since our last episode is that the second iteration of Where Are the Black Designers happened at the end of last month, I think. We wrote about it last year and we also had its founder Mitsuko contributing to issue 25 of Desenia, I think, Golly. Yeah, we worked with Mitzi on a roundtable discussion looking at ideas of blackness and blackness in design and how useful and helpful that term is for black designers and their thoughts and reflections on it. It's a really interesting conversation. It's available in issue 27 and it's also available online, actually. But the second conference hosted this year, I think, is so important because one thing that Mitzi said last year in this discussion, which was very interesting, was that one of the problems facing black designers and I think black people in any industry is that these issues flare up and people talk about them a lot and you see a lot of brands becoming engaged, often in quite a superficial way, and then suddenly the interests uh the interest dies down and things don't change and they remain as they are. So obviously 2020 with George Floyd, there was a huge amount of attention. And the issue Mitzi raised, I think, is, well, how long will people continue to care about this? But she said this, to an extent, happens every year. The question is, uh, do people care enough and do people 
recognize these problems enough to actually continue to work on it. So it's so nice to see where are the black designers back for their second annual conference, which this year is themed around designing and organizing for black liberation. And I think a really great thing was that it was on for two days, two full days this year. And even if you missed it, you can actually uh, watch it back on YouTube in full. And we'll post links to that in our show notes um, so that everyone can uh, connect and listen. Because as you say, it's a, it's an ongoing issue and one that doesn't go away and one that we need to continuously highlight and address. Yeah, and it's interesting as well. I think they, uh, where are the black designers, have changed a little bit and evolved as an organisation. So I asked them about this second conference earlier in the year and how it would be different to the first one. And they said that one of the changes are it's about putting black designers first. Last year, our conference focused on engaging the design community at large. And while this is still true this year, we have made an intentional effort to preserve sacred space for black designers, vetting major decisions in our Black Caucus Slack channel and hosting events focused on healing. And I think they're just a year on. They've got more experience. They've been able to have more discussions, make more links. And it's really impressive, the work that they're doing. And one which I think everyone would be wise to support and check out that conference. It's interesting that it's in a in a quite quiet summer of fashion. You normally see much more activity because there are many shows in the summer. And I think that... The fashion schedule isn't really back on track yet since um, COVID-19 hit us all. There's been two very big pieces of news from LVMH. The first being that they acquired a majority stake in menswear designer Virgil Abloh's own brand, Off-White. He already works at uh, Louis Vuitton, doesn't he? He's the artistic director for their menswear, which Louis Vuitton, no surprise, is an LVMH brand. Indeed. And not only have they taken a majority stake, but they are also saying that they're expanding his role at the luxury group in an attempt to attract younger customers. And at the moment, there aren't any further announcements as to what that means. But it seems that they are looking also beyond the realm of fashion uh, in the in the notice that they put out uh, earlier this month. So it'd be interesting to see what that means. What do you think, Ollie? Yeah, it's an interesting one, because from what they've said, it seems as if he's going to be responsible for helping launch new brands and working with what's already in their portfolio. And not just fashion, but, you know, jewellery, wine, spirits, hotels. Now, in some ways, that's exciting because he's... You know, he's a designer that a lot of people talk about. There's a lot of buzz around him. It will be quite interesting to see what he does. He's, I think, a slightly controversial figure to an extent within design because I don't think anyone thinks that Virgil Abloh is necessarily praised for his abilities as, say, a technical designer. You know, he's not someone renowned for, well, he just does the most incredible things with fabric. He's a technical wizard type thing. It's more his ability to tap into the zeitgeist and to make cultural references, like his ability to sample and all of that. He's a very sort of buzzy designer and has been clever in that respect. And I think that's such a strange thing, actually. And this is a phenomenon you see in all industries. You see it in cinema, for example, where someone you go, oh, they're amazing. They're so fresh and vital and contemporary and they connect to youth culture. What we'll do is we'll apply them to everything. 
It's like, oh, I loved, I loved this actor in this film. Do you know what I'd like to see him in now? Everything, everything under the sun. And I just think if you're a designer who's known for your ability to be zeitgeisty and to be current, is it not kind of the kiss of death to suddenly be everywhere and everything? Like the thing which was exciting about him to an extent was that he was something of an outsider. He didn't have a traditional fashion background. He's not someone who came up from the, through the system. He worked a little bit differently, and so that was nice and refreshing. Um, whereas if he becomes the new standard, that's kind of a problem, I think. And this is true of fashion and everywhere. This ability to roll the new and fresh and outsider into becoming the mainstream and the establishment. But that is also fashion, you know, milk it for what it's worth. You know, it, it's such a multi... <laughs> multi- and, and boy, is he going to be milked. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's interesting because the... Uh, it's very interesting because Michael Burke, who is the person uh, in charge of announcing this news on behalf of LVMH, uh, he is... He's their chief exec, right? The chief, yeah, he's their chief executive. Worked with Karl Lagerfeld, and one of the quotes that uh, appeared in Financial Times, I think, is he was looking back at um, his tenure with Karl Lagerfeld and who, if, you know, who is the Karl Lagerfeld of today and how could we um, position ourselves in a similarly exciting way with a pr- practitioner of 2021? And, and you know, he, his, his eyes went to Virgil Abloh. Then I think it goes back to what we spoke earlier about in terms of Samuel Ross's take on the non-diverse face of British fashion, for example. You know, I think that uh, having Virgil Abloh at the helm will fundamentally change everything from the top down moving forward. And I think that that can only be exciting. So the other piece of news from LVMH is that they are supporting Phoebe Philo or Philo. Did you say Philo? I say Philo. Philo, yeah. Philo's nice because it's like Philo pastry. Philo pastry. And it's more delicious and uh, comfy. Back to Phoebe. Philo, Philo. <laughs> um, oh, that, might, that reminds me of pastry. <laughs> <laughs> She's launching her own label. And I think that in, in context with the announcement around Abloh, this is very interesting because, of course, uh, Phoebe Philo uh, had huge success as the creative director of Celine. She then took uh, three years out of working in the fashion industry at all. And this is the first we've heard of her in a, in a, in a working context, really, since she left Celine. And um, we don't know much yet, apart from that the label will launch in January 2022. But again, it's, it's, an, it's an interesting to me contradiction, actually, with the news released around Virgil Abloh. It doesn't seem entirely forward-looking. It does seem more backward-looking to me. Yeah, it's an interesting one. And LVMH don't necessarily have the best track record when it comes to setting up new brands. They've been much better at revitalising heritage ones. So it will have to see. But no, I agree with you. Phoebe Philo, very much a dominant figure in fashion in the 2010s, I think, which sort of had her tenure at Celine. To be going back to that and for that to be the big news, it's it is a little bit a blast from the past, but I suppose it's exciting insofar as she's doing her own thing. She'd been rumoured to be becoming the creative director of one of those storied old houses and to be on that carousel, which all the designers are, where they just swap jobs every few years. So 
I, I suppose there is a, a reason to be optimistic in that she's trying to do something new and different, but as you say, undoubtedly a, a familiar face when it would be it would be exciting to have some new voices. I should say, I think it's important to note that we're only quibbling with the backing from LVMH and the level of media interest that this new launch has generated. It's not as if we're saying Phoebe Filo should never design fashion again. Of course she should, and it's nice that she's back. I think the thing with Phoebe Filo is like a little bit like Albert Elbaz that you uh, discussed uh, a few episodes back um, after his sad passing. She's a designer, I think, who designs for women. She's very appreciated by the female customer, and clearly this is what LVMH is tapping into. Celine did extremely well under her tenure. So I know from that point of view, I think that's hugely welcome that she's back on the scene designing designing again and, and uh, providing some of that view. They, she's often known as a designer for the female gaze. But at the same time, so much has happened, I must say, in the last three years since she stepped out of Celine. And I think that some of those perspectives on gender uh, has just been so thrown up in the air and completely reconsidered that I don't know if we sit with those same discussions now as we did then. On to products and projects. I mean, the summer is typically not a time in which you see a lot of new releases within design. Uh, the industry, at least in continental Europe, often shuts down for a month while people go on holidays. Lucky them. Lucky them. It's mm. the way to do it. Nevertheless, a couple of interesting things have come through. Uh, do you know Tilco, Johanna? Oh, yeah. It's that shelving company, isn't it, where you can order customised or custom-made shelving online. Yeah, they're an interesting brand. They're based in Poland and they did a lot of work into creating online tools so you can configure shelving exactly to your requirements. And then also it's just interesting in terms of their production model. So it's all produced to order, which means they can also think quite carefully about the packaging and creating bespoke packaging for each thing to reduce wastage there. So they have their Type 02 shelving project, which, you know, is, is an example of that. And that is now available in a matte black which is quite a non-traditional colour for furniture actually at least for shelving I think normally you think of it as white but maybe that's just the the dominance of our old friend Billy Bookshelf <laughs> and modernism yeah away from that world and into lighting design there is Beam this is a new UK based brand which has worked a lot with the designer Samuel Wilkinson. I believe he's actually one of the founders. And they have a range called The Smile. They're quite interesting light bulbs, actually, whereas traditionally a light bulb sort of flows down and out from its holder. What Samuel's done is create light bulbs that sort of flow along and up. So you have the holder and then this sort of LED smiley mouth or a straight line going across. So a little bit of a challenge to that traditional form of the light bulb. And are they meant to be used on their own as light sources or do you just put them into any appliance? No, he's designed the holder as well. So it's sort of its own complete unit. You don't just shove it in a lamp, for instance. But what's kind of nice about it is you don't see a huge amount of change really to the form of the light bulb because it was always determined by its technology. They look that way because it's got a filament inside. Obviously, we no longer use filaments. 
and beams are all uh, micro LEDs, which is a new technology. And that's a sort of flexible filament. So it lets them create these very different shapes. And I guess that's something to look out for in lighting design. More and more, you know, everything's gone towards LED. There's OLED as well, which is a, a different technology again. So in principle, you should start to see very different expressions of light. That's always been the holy grail of uh, all these new lighting technologies. To hark back to some of that lovely glow of the filament light bulb, which at times is difficult to achieve, but I think that uh, many new initiatives uh, are doing a really good job of uh, having a much more pleasant and pleasurable light colour than what we've seen previously. The final thing to talk about is the launch of a new brand. This is El Arcolani, uh, which is founded by Arcol, uh, the UK-based furniture manufacturer. And it's named uh, after its founder, isn't it? Like, apparently they call him the old man, uh, Lucin R. Ercolani. Uh, so it's interesting that they're foregrounding his name in this new brand, I think. And it's looking really, really lovely. They're inviting uh, some new designers as well as uh, reproducing some of the more traditional heritage products that Urkel are so well known for and I was really happy to see that on the roster they have Tomoko Azumi, they have Norm Architects, Matthew Hilton, Jonas Vagel. Yeah Jonas Vagel. There's, there's, there's some interesting names connected to it so interesting to see how it will develop. The final project is a new book from the American architect David Rockwell called Drama. This is exploring David's work in theatre design and how that influences the other areas of his practice. And he did the Oscar ceremonies as well, right? He did. He's done it a few times. He did it... um, twice in a row about a decade ago or so maybe even longer and then he did this year's ceremony which because of covid obviously had to be much more pared back he's an interesting practitioner because he's very much immersed in the world of theater he's done stage set design for theater for cinema and then he's designed theater spaces as well and he also does a lot of hospitality And he's a practitioner who really, really goes out to bat for set design and theatre and thinks that it's an undervalued um, discipline in the remainder of architecture and that architecture could actually learn a lot from looking at it more closely and looking at some of the values which are embodied within theatre. So did you get to talk to him about some of these things in the interview? I did. I phoned him up. He was at his home in New York and we spoke about the new book and some of his other recent areas of work. I believe we have a recording of that. So let's play that now. David Rockwell, thank you very much for joining us on The Crit. It's it's very nice to see you. Great to be here. Thank you. I mean, I think we first met a few years ago when I came to see you in New York when you had the opening of the Hayes Theatre. And I suppose that's going to be a theme of this interview because so much of your work is around theatre. And even when it's not a specific um, theatre building or performance, you're notable, I think, for thinking about architecture and all of these different areas in terms of performance and in terms of theatre, which is interesting because I think that's quite unusual amongst architects. Yeah, you know, like most things, I think designers primarily do what's in their experience to do and and build their kind of point of view that at the moment you're doing it doesn't necessarily feel like a clear choice or a path, 
But when you look at it in the rearview mirror and start to see how you made decisions, you see a, a pattern. And, and um, I've strangely never seen a, a boundary between theater and architecture. Both mm -hmm. of those were parallel, but very separate interests for me that I started to realize were very connected. And not only wasn't there a boundary, but for me, there was this, I would say, thrilling feedback loop between those two things and and, um, and and theater, while early on as an interest for me and as a passion, came later in my career after establishing a studio as an architect. Um, but I did discover that it, in, that one, a piece in one form leads to some observation in the other. And so it was a it's been a chance to really take a look at that and synthesize that down into why and how and you know, what are kind of the mechanisms of that? I mean, you've had a chance to codify some of these ideas in uh, your new book, which is Drama, published by Fidon, which has just come out. And it's a really interesting discussion of your work and the studio's work um, and teasing out some of those links between theatre and architecture. And one aspect of the book that I think is very nice is it's populated with interviews and discussions with the great and the good of architecture and the worlds of theatre. But not only that, you have, I mean, you have a chef, Jose Andres, in there. You have Quincy Jones, the producer and composer. You're bringing in a lot of different areas, and I think it feels quite rich as a result. When you started working on the book, did you always have in mind that very multidisciplinary approach to it and this desire to bring in all those different areas? Well, the, the book happened over quite a long period of time. And, and in fact, the book got me, got me to recognize how we live in a world of uh, instant gratification and instant connection. But the, the experiences I've had in my life that have been the most creatively fulfilling have taken a long time. Some of them 10 years, 12 years, relationships that I've had for 15 years that led to a project. So the book began with me thinking about um, doing a, a look at theater design purely, not just our theater design, but other theater design. And I started to think about, well, what contribution could I make to that? Uh, you know, in some ways, what book would I have wanted to read when I was a student that would have yeah. encouraged unique exploration? And so we started a series of roundtable discussions with uh, friends and, and people who I'm creatively inspired by to try out some of the ideas I was interested in uh, about what makes a two and a half hour performance that may take three years of preparation mm -hmm. that only lasts for the time you're there? How is that inspirational for creating the built world around us? And what are the, the, uh, the kind of human needs to gather? So the group got more diverse as I started to think about who I wanted to learn from, who I wanted to be in conversation with. For instance, the notion of creating worlds so in theater, when the curtain comes up, you're introduced to a world on stage that supports the story and the action. It's not redundant with the story and the action. And if it's doing the same thing as the people talking, it's a problem. So I started to think about how stage design in many ways is fragmented and triggers memory in a way that there's a place for the audience. And that is, I think, very true about spaces I find engaging. They don't tell the whole story. They are only complete when there's an audience. And that notion um, led me to thinking about 
orchestrations and buildings where there was a ritual built in that pre-existed the building. So that's how I got to Thelma Golden, talking about David Adage's design for the uh, Studio Museum in Harlem, and was fascinated to hear from her that it started as a storefront, really. It started as an ad hoc museum that is now growing into a building. And one of the things she's most concerned with is not losing the ritual of the informality of the storefront, that that kind of incomplete experience that was very much about drawing you in became one of the cornerstones of how to create a building. And so it led me to a lot of different people, um, including uh, Bruce Mao, is, a, is brilliantly known for organizing visual information, but he's also a fantastic and provocative thinker. So he was part of the early process with me in thinking about how I might put this together. And you've worked with some of these ideas before. You have a great book from a number of years ago called Spectacle, which is very interesting in which you set out um, what architecture can learn from the idea of spectacles and how they create this sense of social belonging and the desire to have these kind of extra normal experiences and how that's a very important part of a society. I wonder how these two books sit together, because they do explore similar terrain, although, you know, there's a number of years between them. How have your ideas around this evolved in the time since Spectacle? It's an interesting question. Um, I think Spectacle essentially was taking the filter of an architect in looking at larger-than-life spectacular experiences and, as an architect, trying to dissect what what is the DNA? And, and it was a fascinating journey. And in fact, I did speak to a lot of interesting people in that book as well. Yeah. Drama is, is quite different in that it really is putting on sort of my set designer hat and using that filter to, to look at the built world and to see the, the, the dialogue between the two of them. So I think they're quite different where they and, and spectacle has none of our work in it. Drama, you know, we had to push and pull with how we could include other people's work, how we could include historical examples. Where they sit alongside each other is personally, the, all the projects I want to be involved with in my studio moves towards are projects where we're more interested in the question than knowing the answer before we begin. And, and so I think that, that uh, exploration and, and turning that exploration into um, something that's open for other creative individuals to maybe find some, some relevance or meaning or inspiration. And they're, they're similar in that way. You mentioned earlier that you've never seen a division between sort of stage design, set design and architecture. And I think that's quite unusual because at least in my experience of architecture, they're kept very much at arm's length, you know, and I think unfortunately set design is often treated as the junior partner. It's somehow seen as not as serious or intellectual <laughs> as the work of the or as the work of the true architect. I wondered unless you're speaking to set designers, they have a different point of view. Oh no, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but has has it ever been difficult? sort of bringing those two worlds together? Because I think you are unusual in that respect of seeing them as very much working in the same arena and, and ha having a hell of a lot to, to teach each other. Well, I, I began 
my work in New York with spaces that also weren't considered serious architecture at the time, restaurants, while they're, you know, one of the foundational elements of having conversations and bringing cities to life, I think, are now considered, you know, maybe more serious than they were then. From the beginning, what I've been interested in, you know, pushed the edges of what would be considered serious architecture. And I'm not so sure that serious or architecture with a capital A means too much particular to our studio. The notion of really creating places that understand profound needs people have that that make a contribution um, has been important to us. And, And from the beginning, even when I first came to New York, the New York that I was interested in helping to build wasn't the tall iconic buildings that we see in every uh, hero image of New York, but it was more the messy vital stuff that happened on the ground, what happened in the theater, what happened in restaurants. My first day in New York City at 12, I went to a New York City restaurant and I went to see my first Broadway show and those were seared into my experience bank. So I think we've taken uh, an approach that's very inclusive You know, the other thing about theater that I think is misunderstood or perhaps undervalued, and it is the final chapter in the book on impermanence, everyone wants to create timeless design. There's not a client that comes to me that doesn't say the word timeless. And I remind them that on the way to timeless, you have to go through timely. If you Mm -hmm. just go right to timeless, you end up with something with no edge, no eccentricities. And, and it just didn't interest me. What interested me was thinking about what creates a powerful experience. And mm-hmm. I think the drive in architecture for permanence can in some ways block the amazing experience of ephemeral and temporal. And I have, it is true that spectacle and pl- my first book, Pleasure, my, and What If, the monograph we did, um, all in some ways explore the inverse relationship between the power of a memory and the length of an event, which isn't to say we don't want to create permanent things, but we sort of embrace that there's a lot of things that happen on the way to permanent. I think invariably the book is going to be viewed in light of the pandemic because a lot of the things you're talking about and actually all of the areas in which you work are centered around this idea of communal experience. Like you said, hospitality, theater, these are these are the things we've been denied and deprived of for this past year. How has it how has it shaped your practice? How has it shaped the way you look at architecture and design? I think it shaped it profoundly. We um, we had our first Zoom office meeting. Uh, I think a week after March thirteenth, after lockdown in New York, and uh, you know I speaking to my office by Zoom, and I said, "Look, here's the good news." we don't depend on creating places for people to congregate for a living. (laughs) And there was this deathly silence. And I said, well, I'm kidding. That's exactly what we do. But, you know, I think it's forced us to rethink things. It's forced us to rethink how we communicate with each other. I think that one of the ideas I explore in the book is constraints, that exploiting constraints is a very interesting uh, design strategy to really look at. And I sat here editing this book, looking at it in New York with no people on the streets and thinking, well, I mean, it makes in some cases a more profound argument for 
the importance people bring to a city. It really was like an empty theater. In theater, if there's no audience, there is no show. It depends on an ensemble of a number of different expertise coming together to create that. And that's very much true about sort of bringing the city back to life together with, you know, this enormously powerful call for more uh, equity and more um, sort of parity and more understanding that that we had to rethink how we we did things i think as a studio made us lean forward into how we could make a difference and it it comes to a, an issue that throughout my career i've experienced and that is these moments when the world is in some kind of uh, crisis post 9-11 the pandemic Designers do have an opportunity to use what they do to start to create kind of the beginning of different experiences. And, and that led to, you know, a number of conversations about restaurants and would they come back? And was my mm -hmm. book going to be the Old Testament? And, you know, with, because <laughs> in, 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 in the sort of heat of it, no one had any idea how it was going to evolve. Yeah. And we still don't really. So that led to this exploration of dining and front porches and then gathering a group of restaurateurs, starting with someone I met in 96 named Melba Wilson, who is a restaurateur in Harlem who runs the Hospitality Alliance. And we started to advocate and lobby the city to explore outdoor dining, which led us to raising money and creating non-for-profit to research how to do that and to create systems and, and fund a number of restaurants and communities in very disadvantaged areas. So that began a kind of thinking about how the empty space in our cities is an opportunity to think about how to think, do things differently. So mm -hmm. I think that's enormously exciting. And I, and I have to like acknowledge I'm an optimist or I wouldn't do what I do. So I think you have to see opportunity in those crises. I mean, one thing at least which was interesting in the UK was seeing and I, and I think everywhere, actually, we're seeing how precarious some of these things are that are utterly essential to our society. But I mean, it's been an awful time for theatre. And there was a very long time before they received much support and help to try and weather that storm. The same with hospitality. It, it kind of, as an experience, made clear a lot of the things which are central to society and which society would be so much poorer without... We, we maybe need to value a little bit more or, or, or need to really think about how central it is, <laughs> the arts. I, I wish I'd come up with that good an answer to serious architecture versus non-serious architecture. Because <laughs> you just gave the, the, the brilliant answer, which is, you know, the, it, it, it is vital to our experience of what it's like to live together. I think the reason people live in cities is to rub up against each other. And, and, and so I think that's totally true. How How is it shaping the work you're doing? Because, I mean, the pandemic is still ongoing. There are still these issues around social distancing and so on. And I thought one thing that was interesting is you designed the Oscar ceremony this year. And obviously that had to be a very different ceremony to previous years, which you've also designed. You designed the 81st and 82nd Oscars. What was it like revisiting that commission under the constraints of the pandemic? How was it shaping that experience this time around? I think one good test for us as a studio when we engage in a project is, is it totally exciting and is it a little bit terrifying? Those, you know, 
the it, it goes to asking the question before you know the answer. So we had done the Kodak Theater that opened in 2002, never expecting that we'd be invited to do the Oscar ceremony, which, as you said, we did the 81st, and the 82nd in 2008 and 2009. When I was asked to do it this year, of course, it was it was irresistible because yeah. it required a total pivot. Everything about the experience required rethinking and a full-on immersion into epidemiologists and, and then looking at larger pieces of architecture we could use to create a space within it. So every part of it was challenging and difficult. And, and I, it, it, what was most interesting is the challenge of creating a place, in this case, it was 175 seats in the vast uh, Union Station mm-hmm. in Los Angeles, and creating a place in which people were socially distant, but they were in sort of a kind of arrangement in which they felt safe being back together, in which the TV audience is invited into that. So it's stripped mm-hmm. away so much of the, the layers of, by definition, what you expect the Oscars to be. And uh, working in Union Station was unbelievably great. It was really like being back in school and having three all-nighters, only it went on for a month. You know, the other thing we just finished doing that's running right now in New York in terms of rethinking theater is something called Seven Deadly Sins. And it is seven 10-minute world premiere plays by a really amazing group of playwrights uh, directed by Moisef Kaufman and produced by Tectonic Theater. So like the Oscars, when they came to us, they hadn't found a location yet. So yeah. it takes place in seven windows in the meatpacking district. The audience is on the street. And what I find most interesting about it is you're sitting there on headphones watching these 10-minute plays, and you're still including the rest of the city because people on skateboards are going in front of you or people on iPhones are photographing things behind you. And in between plays, you get up and move, and the transitions are as interesting as the plays, like using Union Station differently, like using streets and storefronts differently. I think we're going to be entering this phase where there's a lot of invention possible that that's going to require using space differently, and maybe even in different time blocks. Maybe leases won't be 20-year leases. I think New York, I don't know if you feel this way in London, New Yorkers have experienced the ability to advocate for change and cut through the red tape. Mm-hmm. We now have pocket parks, use of the streets. I think it's turned the city inside out in a way that has emphasized how vital even slivers of outdoor and public space are. Yeah, I mean, there was that extraordinary experience, at least in the first lockdown, where the amount of traffic just fell off a cliff and suddenly you saw what pedestrian streets could be like whether that leads to actual empowerment and the actual opportunity to make change in the long run I don't know but there was something exciting about seeing it there was like that that glimmer of hope I think and the idea of oh you know we could have a different city like a perspective shift yeah it was interesting you you talk about that and that you mentioned transitions in the context of that theatre project, because I, th- I think in the first discussion, actually, in drama, you explicitly say that. You say what interests you most are these notions of transition, sort of entering into a space and having these different experiences. How does that shape the way you work, that focus on transition and that focus on moving between different spaces? 
Well, one of the ways it shapes what we do is we think about our buildings as a series of linked experiences and um, the kind of journey or the choreography of movement through a space starts with, in some ways, what the proscenium is in a theater. When that curtain comes up, you're invited into this world and then things unfold in front of you. We very much look at the spaces we create as a series of choreographed movements. We're working on a building right now for uh, Johns Hopkins in Washington, D.C. that is a school that's going to invite multiple uh, constituents within the Johns Hopkins campus to use it. And we've actually put the most public spaces the, the, as the classrooms so that the thing that will draw you up in terms of choreography and journey is moving towards something you can see. And I think thinking about path and movement, it's one of the things we look at with any project we do is a series of snapshots that are almost like portals into the next space. It was the thing that convinced me early on that theater was a really vital thing for me to be doing more and more of because to create one transition in the theater requires seven or eight really talented, different professional sound, lighting, tech, mm-hmm. music, choreography to collaborate on that movement. And much like the book where we brought in a lot of different voices, I think we find um, drawing inspiration from the world around us and bringing everything we can to bear on those individual transitions pays big dividends in the experience of the space. Yeah, I mean, that's very notable throughout the attention to the experience of the space. I think you talk about again and again in drama. You have this line where I think you say an architect who's not interested in, say, the lighting. It's almost like making a film, but not bothering with a cinematographer or something. It's just stripping it of something so essential and something that's so powerful for shaping the experience. Yeah, you sort of pulled yourself out of one of the key ways to shape a space and shape an experience. Well... I think that's probably covers all the time we have. So, David Rockwell, thank you very much for joining us on The Crit. It went so quickly. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. (laughs) So that concludes this episode of The Crit. Did you enjoy the interview with David? Yeah, very much. I thought it was very interesting the way he speaks about scenography and the importance of it for architecture. Just to give listeners a little bit of insight into how this works, Johanna hasn't actually listened to that interview yet. Oh, uh, you shouldn't so... say that. I thought that I gave such a good answer. I come clean. I haven't yet been allowed to listen to the interview, but I will listen to it with the rest of you when this episode goes live. This is like so strange and meta. We're talking about something that happened in the past that... Anyway, never mind. I'll leave it at that. Well, that's all we have time for this week. We will be back next month in August to look over that month's design news. And by that stage, we will have also finished the new issue of Desenio, the Quarterly Journal of Design, which is due to hit newsstands in September. So we'll have a little bit of an update and a sneak sneak look. Yeah, <laughs> sneak, sneak, sneak preview, sneak peek, sneak, sneak preview. preview, sneak peek at that then. The other thing that's nice to think about for that issue and for our listeners to consider is that we are celebrating 10 years with that issue. We are, so it will be a special one. So stay tuned, keep listening, and we'll have more in a month's time. If you'd like to get in touch with us in the interim, you can reach us on at the Crit Podcast on Instagram, at the Crit Design on Twitter, 
or send us an email. We're on thecrit at desenyojournal.com. This episode of The Crypt was hosted by Ollie Stratford and Johanna Argerman-Ross. It was produced and edited by Evie Hall, and our theme music is composed by Yori Suzuki, with Team Suzuki at Pentagram. Pentagram.